Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Success Theory. I'm your host, Andrew Flowers, and today I'm here with uh, not only a mentor of mine, but also an extremely successful entrepreneur, best-selling author, and renowned public speaker, Robert Vera. How are you doing, Robert? Doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Great to be here with you. Welcome to the podcast. So for, for my listeners, you just want to dive in a little bit about who you are, what you do, just kind of give them a little bit of information yeah. about yourself. Um, started my career literally in, in politics, graduated from Boston College in the late 80s, um, uh, worked for Senator, United States Senator Ted Kennedy. Um, he was the brother of President John F. Kennedy. Um, worked there for a number of years, left there, went into um, banking, kind of worked up the food chain of banking, everything from um, mostly on the lending side, um, asset-based lending um, into uh, um, my last stop on the banking food chain was at um, a large investment bank, uh, Merrill Lynch. They're part of Bank of America now. I left there in 2006. Um, anyway, really enjoyed the experience of banking, but wanted to do something different. Um, so uh, had um, you know entrepreneurial urges the whole time. Did some things on my own, consulting. But um, in 2006, I started a um, a workplace wellness company. Um, used technology to actually create a workplace wellness program for. Um, the workplace community. Everybody knows that you know what a heart rate monitor is. Is a heart rate monitor built into every piece of cardiovascular equipment at every um, fitness center, but no one knows how to use it. So I took that technology. Um, we didn't have wearables at the time. This was 2006. I actually took the technology, heart rate zone training technology, um, took that out of the um, you know took that technology, put it in with a meal plan, created a workplace wellness program where you had a customized meal plan with a customized heart rate zone training program, delivered that across, um, uh, it, was an on, it was an online platform at the time, there wasn't really smartphones, wasn't wearables, um, anyway, uh, launched that into the workplace community and it went really well. Um, and then about 2009, uh, workplaces started to fall off, so it was a real challenge to actually keep the company going. And um, anyway, had a, had a um, ended up exiting with an asset exit to um, more or less um, trade the algorithm for um, uh, you know someone wanted the algorithm, so I did that and got out. Um, along the way, I met a um, a young Navy SEAL. His name was Ryan Job. Your listeners to remember Ryan Job from the movie American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Ryan was a young Navy SEAL. He was shot on a rooftop in Ramadi, Iraq. Um, the movie version has Ryan dying a couple days after he was shot, but in real life, he lived down the street from me in, in Arizona, and uh, we became good friends. Um, so in, uh, uh, tragically, he, he passed away um, three years after he was wounded, and I wrote the story of our friendship um, and what his life meant to me, and um, so that became a, um, a bestseller. Um, and um, from there, I took off, uh, you know, writing career and speaking career. So I did a bunch of speaking events. Probably I think my first year, I did like five or six, and then it ended up, you know, doubling uh, to the point. I think I maybe done, I don't know, like fifty plus speaking events in, in a year. Um, really enjoyed that. And then in um, August of 2019, this year, I ended up um, working. I uh, knew some folks over at GCU. Applied for a position here was the Innovation Center. I really like the idea of innovation, so became the director of the GCU Innovation Center, which is a really interesting place um, uh, to be right now, I think, in, in time, just for a lot of different reasons. <clears throat> okay, so diving into kind of the first thing you mentioned, talking about working in politics. What was that like? What kind of got you interested in that, and why Why did you end up changing your career? Yeah, um, so I was a political science major. Don't do that. If you're <laughs> listening, don't ever become a political science major. It's um, 
more or less a worthless piece of paper. Like um, you're, there's really no there's no such thing as political science. Mm -hmm. um, but I um, I really liked the idea of okay I should probably use something in my major right. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was like okay I'm a political science major probably should go use it. Ted Kennedy, uh, I was from Ma I'm from Massachusetts originally, so you don't have a choice between Republican or Democrat. You've worked for a Democrat, and mm -hmm. I need an internship. So I was yeah. young, needed the money. So anyway, got into that. I really enjoyed it. So for those of you listening you know, who don't know or know about politics, it's really about relationships and deal-making. So um, you want to pass a piece of legislation. You need sponsors for that legislation, and you need to go out to your, you know, your, your fellow senators and work to um, get deal-sponsored and, and um, you know, legislation sponsored. What I did there was a little different. Every time you know someone has a problem, they say, "Well, I should contact my senator." So I worked in constituent services. So if you are a, uh, if you live in Washington, you're a constituent of two senators. Every state has two senators. And so if you have a problem, my area of expertise where I handled was military and veteran affairs. So it, when you when you leave the military, you need to get a um, discharge paper. It's called the DD-214. So I would do everything from getting you know former Marine in their DE-214 to working on some, really some egregious cases of medical malpractice in the military. It's really an obscure um, sort of um, law that people don't know about. Mm -hmm. If you are, if you are, um, suffer military or, I'm sorry, malpractice in the military um, or through a military hospital and you're active duty, um, in the military, you have no recourse. So I worked on cases where physicians would amputate the wrong leg, um, just some egregious oh cases goodness. and just, um, but I really enjoyed the process. I had a pretty good relationship with Senator Kennedy. Um, he was obviously, I mean, people know about him. He's a legend in the, in the Senate. So it was a great experience working with him. I met you know, a lot of dignitaries, Nelson Mandela, um, you know, uh, Raisa Gorbachev, Miguel Gorbachev. Um, the wall came down while I was there. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so just a really great experience to be part of that time in history. A little bit different then. We used to work with the Republicans. Um, we're in the obviously the Democratic side, but we worked with some of the staunchest Republicans that the Senate has known: Jesse Helms, Strom Thurmond, and um, you know worked very closely with them to get things done. So we moved a lot of legislation um, at that point and helped a lot of people. So I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I don't think that you know for me a career in politics is what wasn't what I was looking to do, and um, I really like the idea of of finance. So um, using debt to grow a company um, and restructuring debt um, was interesting to me. So I went into that part of banking. And um, um, I really enjoyed that. How do you use a loan to grow your company? How do you, how do you use leverage to grow your company? Um, so I really liked that and went in and helped a lot of small businesses restructure debt, um, put a loan in place to do that stuff. So you know, it was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. you know? So you got into investment banking next. What you know for a lot of people out there, they don't even know what investment banking is. Yep. They think of a bank and it's put my money away. Yep. Investment banking. What you do is you bring deals together. So um, companies need money. Um, you bring those deals together. You either underwrite it publicly, so you do publicly traded or IPOs. So my role, I would bring deals together, and I would I would bring the deal together and find the equity financing for it or launch the equity financing with it. So. Um, that's one part of investment banking. Um, there's the debt side of investment banking, which are bonds, where you underwrite bonds. I was on the equity side of investment okay. banking, where companies would come, they need money, and they'd say, here's what we want to do. We, um, you know, here's, here's what we're looking for. We think our stock will be valued at this. We would take those companies out and go public, or um, we would um, 
basically, f you know, fund those companies. Um, um, so you look to, to put deals together as investment banks. That's what an investment banker does. Okay. So was it stressful? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're always, you're, you know, those, of, if you're listening, you want to go into investment banking, you kind of start at the bottom and you work on the retail side, which, you know, you, you go get your Series 7 and mm -hmm. your 66. I did that. Um, it's stressful because, you know, investment banking, I mean, people say I'm an investment banker. There's financial planners that say they're investment bankers. Some exactly. of that is true. Um, but financial planners are, are different. Um, they work on the retail side with customers. You um, work more B two B. Yeah, I worked more on. I worked in retail. I, I, you know, I liked it, but yeah, it's it can be stressful. Um, you know, you're you're trying to make a number. You're trying to bring in money. You know, it's it's big numbers. You can't screw up. So it, it's interesting. And, you know, getting deals done is very difficult. Um, and being, you know, making sure that those are the right deals. Um, it's very difficult. On the retail side, you always have to bring in clients. And look, I mean, markets go three ways, up, down, and sideways. On the retail side, you need a plan for each, up, down, and sideways. Now, for, unfortunately for a company, you need a plan for each one of those, but mm -hmm. you're only planning, really, you're driving towards to the, the upside. upside. Yeah. So um, hopefully, if it goes down and sideways, you have a plan. Most companies don't. <clears throat> but okay. uh, I really enjoy that. I, I much prefer to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Much prefer preferred. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, Is it similar to, I know there's movies like The Wolf of Wall Street out there with Jordan Belfort, kind of painting a culture and showcasing the like boiler room, making, you know, rows of people making phone calls. How does that compare to kind of the corporate setting that you were in? Yeah, some of that's true, um, where you just got to make phone calls. And brief. But here's, here's what's happened over the years. I think it's become a lot more sophisticated, where... Um, you know, you can't go, you, people don't sell people individual stocks anymore. You mm -hmm. know, there's so many requirements now, so many, you know, um, you just can't do that stuff anymore. So generally what happens is um, you'll see people in their offices making calls, prospecting calls to bring clients in. The, the, there's a, you know, regulation, know that clients, you have to know who they are. Um, there's a lot of regulations associated with um you know, the investment banking world. One of the reasons why I, I think I'll never go back to it and, and sort of left it is because, you know, the investment bank world is, is rife with, with um, requirements and, and, you know, legislation that governs, you know, the conduct of people. But, you know, it's not really the individual sort of person that working at the investment bank that, that's going to steal money. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I liken it to this. I mean, we saw in 2008 and nine, you know, the, the financial crisis, and we saw all these banks making bad loans, you know, and these banks, Wells Fargo in particular, you know, it took 25 billion dollars, you know, to 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 prop up their balance sheet, and um, you know, most of the retail people there didn't do anything wrong. No one did anything wrong. Wells Fargo was wrong. They made bad decisions. They made bad loans. Wells Fargo did, um, and then when you know, when things went sideways, they had to borrow money from the American people to bail themselves out. Well, you know, what, what is not well publicized by Wells Fargo is after that happened, they had the highest, they, they, they made the most profit that they ever had in their 120-year history. Here's what Wells Fargo did. Wells Fargo used the American, the American people to use that money, the $25 billion, to prop up their balance sheet. That's what they did. They didn't redo any loans for people. Um, and what they did is that they, they, they were going out to the consumers and saying, please repay your loan, please repay, we're going to work out something. This, this is all public information. I'm not saying anything, you know, um, out of school about this. 
they've been fined for this. There's been a lot of things. So what Wells Fargo did is they, they told people, continue to pay your loan. We're going to redo your loan. We're going to modify your loan. These are mortgage holders. Thousands upon thousands of people lost their homes. They were foreclosed on by Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. uh, Wells Fargo made the most profit they've ever made in 125-year history, right? They borrowed it from the American people, right? And then Wells Fargo never lowered anybody's rate. They got effectively got their money at 0%. So that's why they made so much money. They traded their 6% money for 0% money and had people paying all that time. Wells Fargo is the one who did wrong. They're the ones who, you know, are the... Now, here's the problem we have today. All those banks, those too-big-to-fail banks, what rules do they have to follow? They make them. They were too big to fail in the first place. Now mm -hmm. they're 30% bigger. What are we going to do? How, how are we going to stop them from doing something wrong now? Exactly. Um, there's no way to do it. So I didn't really like that. I didn't really like being part. I didn't want to be the intellectual... I didn't want to give them my intellectual property to help them do that. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not working for one of those too big to fail banks. In fact, I don't even want to have my deposits at those too big to fail mm -hmm. banks. Um, so you go with mostly credit union and smaller I banks? Think, <laughs> I, I think, you know, do I have more control? In some ways, I think I do. Maybe I don't. Do I get better rates? Yeah, I think that rates are very competitive. Um, you know, but yeah, I just don't trust the big banks, right? I just don't trust that they... They are working for themselves, not the American people, although the American people bailed them out. So I have a strong dislike and distrust of the entire banking industry. Um, I, just don't like, I just don't like the way they do business. And um, so, so I left that and will never go back to that industry okay. um, for, for, um, for personal reasons. <laughs> so you kind of hopped into the next thing I know you mentioned starting workplace health software company. Uh, what kind of made you get that, that shift? What, what, what made you? Yeah, I saw the problem, right? So the problem was this. I don't know if you've ever heard the, um, it, it, it's, it's spoken to widely that there's an obesity epidemic. Mm -hmm. So how could, how could you catch fat? How do you catch, catch fat? fat? How could an epidemic, how do you get an epidemic out of obesity? Okay. Yeah, it's weird, right? So, so Epidemics have a pathology, a transmittal mm -hmm. source, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, right? It was transmitted by soldiers coming back. So to, in order to be an epidemic, right, there has to be a transmittal source. So okay. when, when you hear the media here and there, oh, there's an obesity epidemic. Really? How do you catch fat? How do people get fat? How do you transmit the epidemic? Um, so it's a self-made well, epidemic. it was either that, right? So it was yeah. either the media being glib and using epidemic as a, as a um, metaphor term. Okay. For, for what's happening, or it was really an epidemic. And I was curious to find out. So I was really kind of bored in my investment banking world. I started doing Ironman triathlons. I really like doing Ironmans, but everybody uses a heart rate monitor. I saw that, like, you know, I went really transformed physically, I think mentally, emotionally, spiritually from the whole process. And I started thinking about this epidemic, like, because... Um, you know, when you ask people, this is a very sort of simple question. If you ask people, hey, you know, how many calories do you need a day? You know, we have an epidemic of obesity, right? And 80% of the cost for healthcare are being spent on people who, who could change their health with just lifestyle modifications, meaning just lose weight. Mm -hmm. That's all you had to do. Exactly. You lost. So, so now people say, oh, um, well, I tried and I, and I didn't, I tried this diet, I tried this and it, and it didn't work. Okay, okay, let me, let me ask a question. How many calories are in one pound? When you ask that to people, they have no idea. By the way, it's 3,500. Mm -hmm. 3,500 calories in one pound. Then you say, hey, how many calories do you, Andrew, 
How many calories do you need a day to maintain your current body weight while at rest? 2,000. Maybe, because guess what? It's called your basal metabolic rate. It's specific to you based on your height, your weight, your age, all those things specific to you. So everybody's BMR is different, right? And then you say, okay, how many calories do you take in a day? Nobody knows that because you actually have yeah. to track that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then, all right, how many calories do you burn a day? Good question. Right. So unless you have a heart rate monitor, mm -hmm. some people wear a Fitbit, which is I've used a Fitbit. It's 30% off. Like, so you might as well not even use it, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good guide. But So I thought, wait a minute. We have this epidemic, right, of obesity. And 80% of the healthcare cost um, is being, you know, could be, could be eliminated almost with lifestyle modification, which is a euphemism for lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. And then you ask people, why, you know, why can't you lose weight? But they don't know any of the things that we just talked about. There's so none of the tenets. So I said, okay, this is interesting. Um, and I needed to go investigate epidemics. So I, I read a study. It was in July of 2007. Um, there was in the um, New England Medical Journal and said that um, obesity is an epidemic, and they, they explained why. And so I flew to Massachusetts. I met with George Blackburn, who was the head of the Harvard School of Nutrition at Harvard Medical School. And I said, George, is obesity really an epidemic? So I need you to, to read this and meet with the research. So I did, and I found that obesity was an epidemic, and it's transmitted through social networks. They had a, lo a longitudinal study over 30 years called the Framingham Heart Study. I read through the study, and they said, we did a follow-on study. And we went to your house because you're obese, and we interviewed you. Mm -hmm. Then we said, who are your neighbors? And we went and interviewed their neighbors. And guess what? Their neighbors weren't fat. And we said, well, who's in your social network? And they said, oh, Mary and John. Well, guess what? They're Everybody fat. in their social network was fat. Gotcha. So they concluded that obesity is an epidemic because... It is transmitted through social networks, which are interesting, sympathetic, and influential. That wasn't a business, though. This was. I said, wait a minute. If that is true, then epidemics, if they're influenced by social networks, and they're both sympathetic and influential, if they can go in one direction, they can go in the opposite. They may be able to go in the other. So I said, if I got one person fit, lean, in that, in that social network, it Okay. They would influence other people. So I launched the company with that premise, and it worked up to a certain point. Um, we gave people a customized heart rate zone training program, a customized meal plan. You could look it all online. All you had to do, you could eat anything you want. You just couldn't eat everything you wanted, right? Okay. So up to a certain point, it measured your calories. We were connected to a calorie counter, measured calories, put it in, and just find it at the end. It told you how much fat you lost a day, how much weight you lost a day. Um, so that so we, mainly by pushing a calorie deficit? Um, you weren't in a, well, let's say you were in a caloric deficit, it wouldn't matter because what happens if you ate too much, um, you could just go burn, hey, burn off an extra okay. thousand calories. Like, so you sense. had the checks and balance, mm -hmm. right? You had a heart rate monitor, told you how much you burn. You, you know, what exercise? I don't care what exercise you do, just go walk. Just burn an extra 500 calories, mm -hmm. right? But what happens is educated people. Now you know how many calories are in your cream that you put in your coffee. Now you know how many calories are in an apple. Now you know how many calories in you know a hamburger from Chili's, whatever it was, that right? Extra large pepperoni. Pizza. So you know, like yeah, yeah. If you're gonna eat the extra large pepperoni pizza, you're gonna need a week of yeah. burning it off, right? Street stairmaster. You know <laughs> how much are in the. But it was pretty easy because every by law the federal government makes you put calorie requirements on it. Anyway, mm -hmm. it worked great, um, and we started to see results where people 
said, wow, John, what are you doing? And they said, oh, I'm doing this program. We called it Iron 90 because we did it in 90-day cycles. Okay. Um, and we would get people from all over the country and then, you know, from other parts of the world want, sign up online to do it. We ship them out a heart monitor. So it went great. Here's the two things I didn't realize is that um, some of the people in those social networks would literally adopt the solution. Say, I want to do Iron 90. I got to do this. It's great. But others would just shun that person who lost weight. Mm-hmm. They would leave the social network. Gotcha. So we didn't get all of the social network. But it went really well. Um, what happened was... Was it um, a subscription model, by the way? Software as a service. A... You buy it, you know, 300 bucks for the whole thing. Okay. gives you a heart monitor, assessments, videos, how to do things. So it was, we were way ahead of our time, which um, is good and bad. First to market. Um, did great revenues starting out of the gate. I mean, really did it. Did our development out of India. So we had a great team out of India. Um, so it was great. We didn't have wearables at the time. When wearables were coming in, Fitbit was just coming in, um, we were still in the capital raise. And at, at some point, I was like, this is going to be a real challenge. I need to figure out how to raise five million bucks, keep this thing going, um, and I need to keep up with browser changers because every time a browser changes, you got to change your, your app, you know, your, your solution, right? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes back then, this is 2006, right? Back then, your website didn't keep up with browser changes. Exactly. You actually had to change your browser. So... So, and I was doing it basically on my own. I did have a business part at the time, but um, didn't turn out to be that useful in, in a lot of different areas. So, um, but anyway, it went great. When I had the opportunity to get out and get my, all my investors out whole, I took it. Um, partially because 2009 calibrated me. Um, you, you know, nothing could go wrong, people thought. Nothing could go wrong. And then the wheels completely came off, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're on both knees praying. I, I would tell people all the time, like my kids, they were young at the time, and uh, I'd say, you know, they had a bad habit that they they wanted to eat like three times a day. You know what I mean? And you're yeah. like, oh, hold on a second. Like, you know, Slow down there. when did this happen? Right? <laughs> um, so ended up, you know, when I could get out, I did, and um, I was grateful for it. And then literally rolled into, knew I, I had... Um, a book in me that I wanted to do, never written a book, just sat down, wrote the manuscript. Um, I found somebody with an agent, sent it to one person, they sent it to another person, an agent who was a top agent at the time, Chip McGregor signed me, um, and then HarperCollins bought the you know project. I'm a first-time author, they're the largest publisher in the world, and they bought the project and um, launched in 2015, shortly after it became a bestseller. Did the speaking tour, did a couple of books after that, um, really enjoyed the process. So it was, it was good. I mean, I really, I liked it. I'm not one of those people who, um, um, I think storytelling is sort of a lost art. So I like, I'm not kind of a how-to book guy. I'd rather just craft the story and tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, I'd like to do a how-to book. Instruction manual. Yeah, I think those are boring. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, you get that. That's textbook crap. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in it. Okay. So... Kind of before we jump into into your book stuff, I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with raising money because it's something a lot of young entrepreneurs, even just entrepreneurs in general, who don't even really know, yep. you know, the whole world of venture capital funding, private equity, angel groups. What was your experience with that? What yeah, uh, great question. So first of all, um, raising money is one of the most challenging things you'll ever do. Um, you have to be right and it's got to be the right time. So those are the two things you have to figure out. Um, when you're doing this, and vet investors, most of them are fairly sophisticated because they have money to invest, so they did something right. Their experience, if, if your experience doesn't map to their experience, 
probably not going to get investing in. Um, mine were angel investors. Um, first investor was a pretty sophisticated guy, sold the company for half a billion dollars. Um, uh, but the, the takeaways I got from that were, were this. One, it helps if you're in revenues. Really helps if you're in revenues. So get a product, beta test it. Get sure, MVP. Get, yeah. yep, get MVP in revenues, right? Your evaluation, what you think it's worth, is not what they think it's worth. So you're going to get hammered on your valuation, right? Starting under a million doesn't really work. So you're over a million dollars. You got to prove that it's valuation. You got to be clear about where your exit is, if there is an exit. And a lot of times people say, oh, it's a li nice lifestyle business, which is a euphemism for like, oh, there's no way I'm getting out of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, so my experience in raising money is like everybody else. I got hammered, like hammered by everybody. Um, you know, mostly angel investors I would talk to one-on-one. -on -one. Um, now, remember, I have a fairly sophisticated product, and I just did a little bit of education here, right? Mm -hmm. I would get questions like, now, the gym, my program was, you know, online. Yeah. People would ask, Where, well, where's your gym? Well, it's, you know, on your computer. Exactly. You don't need it. It's, uh, and I would liken it to this. You know, you, like a gym is a manufacturing facility. You, if, unless you have You're a plan, manufacturing healthy unless you have a plan, there's no blueprint, right? Mm -hmm. So mine is the blueprint for the gym. Go there. Here's your okay. blueprint, right? So they would ask those questions like, where's your gym? Ah, oh, we don't have a gym. How are people from, you know, we'd say, well, here's a group from, from, you know, we did individuals at first. Here's a group of 10 individuals from Ohio. One of the investors, I remember talking to him, he's like, you know, I just can't get it in my head here. How are they doing personal training with you from Ohio? You don't understand. Like this is 2006, mm -hmm. so, it so was you're a, on the cutting edge, and they're not. They're not even Excellent. close. Okay. They're they're thinking you need to have a gym. You need to, like. But anyway, my experience was this: is that I once said to myself, you know, if I just charged everybody tuition for the education I gave them, I'd have my money right now, right? So it's a lot of effort to do it. The three pieces of advice I give to everyone looking to raise money: um, first of all, get into revenues. It makes a lot easier to raise money when you're in revenues. Just, just get into revenues, right? Get, you know, two, three. Reoccurring revenues are much better than single revenues. Get into revenues. That's the first thing. One, make sure that your pitch is, is locked down. Like there's no loose ends in your pitch. Know what the, so I always say size, structure, then story. Here's the size of the market. Here's the structure I'm giving you. And here's my story. Do that. Be very succinct about it and, and deliver that. So if you can do that. The last thing I tell invest, uh, you know, people who are starting a company doing it is you have to refine it all the time. Like it's never, you know, it's always being refined. You got to practice it and practice it and practice. Always refine it. Make sure you know what your valuation is. Make sure you know who your audience is. Refine it all the time. Um, it's a full-time job. In addition to running the company, in addition to generating. So you got, yeah, you got a lot on your plate, and it changes with each step as you're moving up that, I guess capital raise food chain, you know, starting with angel groups, then moving up to, would you say, venture capital or so, private equity? Yeah, so so the three, how, here's how it works. Angel is the first level, right? And that's kind of like friends and family. We call that seed round, right? Mm -hmm. So angel is the first level. From 50,000 to, let's say, 500,000, right? Then you get into series A. And, and then you get into kind of series age, which may be sophisticated angel up and, and maybe venture. So now you have venture people, so venture capital groups who say, you know what? This is pretty good. They are going to hammer you on your valuation, right? Many times what those guys will say, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to take 50.1% of the company and we'll give you a way to earn yourself back. Now, here's a slippery slope for an entrepreneur. 
yeah, I don't like that. Well, um, great. Well, we don't, we're not going to give you the money. And now you've just convinced us that you don't think you can get to the places where you can earn your money back, right? So that's a slippery slope. You've got to be careful for that one, right? Um, and then, so once you get to, um, to venture money and you've got your A round, your B round done in venture money, you're obviously in revenues, you're moving forward. The exit strategy, the exit strategy is PE or IPO. PE is probably much better. And here's why. PE starts at 20 million and goes up to, you know, you know, maybe a billion, right? Just a full acquisition. And what they're doing is PE is going to buy you. It's five to seven years. They're not sticking around for any longer than that. They're out in seven years max, right? They're buying you because they think strategically, we think we can grow this thing. We think we can get a 10 banger out of this thing, meaning 10 times what we paid for it. We're going to sit this thing down here. We're going to put, we're going to add value with money. We're going to get the owner and exit strategy, right? Develop a scalable system. In, yep. So maybe able to scale this thing. We've got some other partners in our portfolio. Maybe able to scale this thing. And our exit strategy will either be acquisition by corporation mm-hmm. or IPO. Or um, this thing grows and kicks off a ton of cash. It turns and into a machine. It turns into a machine. And um, we may be able to take it public. Okay. So PE is the kind of the last stepping stone. Last stepping stone, and public companies can come back private. So we see that all the time. Where LifeLock, mm-hmm. I think, when public and private, you know, so those type of things. So PE is the exit strategy for um, for the venture, okay, or for the founder. So in your opinion, what do you think we were, did wrong if we're talking about going public IPOs? their strategy, because I know they're making a bunch of layoffs right now. <laughs> yeah. So WeWork is the co-working space um, across the... Um, so what I think they may have done wrong, and I'm not an expert because I don't <laughs> know, but, you know, and, and there's never one thing, right? But, you know, you bet heavily on these companies, right? And it's a real estate play. They're, they they bought the real estate at, I don't know, 100 bucks a square, and they're selling it for 200 bucks a square. So here's the problem. You have to make sure that those companies are viable. So what happens when they leave? What happens if the, all of them leave or 70% of them leave? You're, you're, you're stuck with all this real estate. So think of it this way. Um, malls are not doing that well because people are leaving. They're going online. I think the same people we work like, you know what? I'll just work from my house. So they're, they're considering the cost of WeWork, like, you know what? This is way too expensive. I'm out of here. I'm not getting a lot of value. I'll just go work out of my house. So it's the mall effect. I think that's probably what happened. People don't go to the mall because they're like, you know what? I don't really want to go hang out at the mall. And I think I can do this online. So that's, I think, what happened to WeWork. Now, the guy who founded WeWork, like, he cashed in. So um, Yeah, he got a pretty good, even when he lost all that money, he still got out pretty nice. He got out. So, um, but anyway, that's, but I think that's, um, those co-working spaces, those things have to be very careful of, do we really have a viable Business clientele model. here? Okay. Yeah. yeah business model do we and I don't know if a lot of them do okay so let's kind of shift gears hop into your life as an author and public speaker what was that whole experience like getting signed by the biggest publishing company yeah so a lot of people say yes. I want to write a book everybody I talk to oh I'd love to write a book I love to you know writing a book is you sit down and you actually tape, type words into a box and um you need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's usually part one, part two. Part. People ask, how do, you, how do I do it? Literally, how I do it, I start with an outline. 
which is the table of contents. Um, so you have to have a good story and you have to know how to craft it. Um, how I wrote my first book is I didn't really know how to write a book. I figured, well, maybe I should go get a book about how to write a book. So I went to the library and I got a book that said, how to write your bestseller. <laughs> so <Lots of> that. <laughs> I, I went and got that book and I learned that, you know, you want to create, like, put stickies on the wall where you're going to sort of these fall into, here are the chapters you want to do. So um, I went and got that book, did what it said, started writing, um, and then I wrote the entire book. And then I, I sent it to, I just had a contact, sent it to an agent, and they called me up and said, is this true? I said, yeah. I said, wow, this is a pretty incredible story. Did you write it? I'm like, yeah. Um, I was asked if I'd written anything. A couple of things I was not prepared for is this. Um, I, would, I would speak with um, publishers, and they would all ask the same question inevitably. And it was sort of cloaked in a couple of different ways. But they'll ask, tell us about your platform. Tell us about your platform. And what, the, what a platform is, for those of you listening, platform is you need to have a network, a group of people on social media who will buy your book. Here's why. Publishers are not going to sell your book. They won't uh, build it for you. Yeah. Here, here's what happens. When was the last time you went into a bookstore? Fair enough. There are no bookstores anymore, right? There's Amazon. <laughs> Barnes & Noble, maybe. Maybe. But you there. go there to get coffee and peruse the books. You never buy one. Yeah. You know? And um, so here's, here's what you need to do if you want to write a book. Build your social network. Hundreds of thousands are better than thousands. Millions are better than... And if you have that, someone, a publisher is going to say, great, we can extrapolate from your millions of people that some percentage of them are going to pay $19.99 for your book, so you're going to get a book deal. Um, the story does not even have to be that good, and mm -hmm. you're probably going to get a book deal. I, unfortunately, did not have that luxury. <laughs> so I had no Facebook, no, none of that stuff. So I didn't even have... I, I did not have a Facebook page <clears throat> when I got signed. I didn't have LinkedIn. There wasn't Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have any of that stuff. Um, you had to build it all? I had to build it, you know, and it was weird because I really, like, you know, I have a Facebook page, but, you know, I built it to, like, I don't know, my personal page is, like, one time Facebook said, oh, you need to have to, you're going to have to pay for people or pay to do something because I went over, like, 5,000 friends. <laughs> so if you look at my Facebook page, I have, like, 4,900 98, you know, people, because they don't want to mm, yeah. pay, pay Facebook anything. So, but, um, so when I got out of the library, I got a book about how to write a book, sat down, wrote a book. Um, you know, it took me a while to write a book. How long did it take you? Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a long process. Um, you know, it started out journals that, that I'd taken about what exactly happened, you know, the unfairness of it all. Um, so it was probably from 2000, Ryan passed in 2009. So, you know, the real process was probably two years. Um, and then uh, two years and then, you know, after, you know, wrote it, um, you know, learned sort of how to do this, how to write it. And then, um, you know, I still, I still read a lot. So some of the mentors I read, you know, have become mentors. I talked to them. There were some of my sort of fans. I was one of their fans. But Stephen Pressfield is an um, author. Not, if you've not read The Authentic Swing and the, the War of Art, he also wrote, if you see the movie 300, mm -hmm. he wrote the book, The Gates of Fire, which is the Battle of Flop, uh, 
Thermopylae? Uh, yeah, Thermopylae. And um, if you've never read Pressfield, he's awesome. He writes most, it, The Legends of Bagger Vance, he wrote. Okay. So Pressfield is great. Robert Greene's a friend, 48, uh, you know, I did a podcast with him recently, um, The 48 Laws of Power. He did, um, recently did, uh, he did work with 50 Cent and they did the 50th Law of Power. Mm -hmm. So those guys, I like how they write. So those guys have become writing mentors. Um, so find a mentor. Um, you don't have to know them. Just read all their stuff and figure out how they write. Sebastian Younger um, wrote The Perfect Storm and others. So learned how to write, um, you know, crafting my style based on their style. Um, built my social network. Still not that great. I don't spend any time on it, which you probably should. <laughs> People say, I try to connect with you on Facebook, whatever. I'm like, yeah, sorry, you know. Oh, well. Um, but, um, and then launched it. It went really well. Speaking came after that because my, um, my publisher put me in their speaking group. So I'd get calls to go speak. So I'd go do that and then, and then signed with another agency and then um, developed a speaking program. Did that. Problem with speaking is it's just not scalable. Exactly. So I like I mean, doing it. Fixed rate. Fixed rate, not scalable. Um, there's no business model that I can, you know, when I think through it, there's not a viable business model for speaking. There's just not. And I challenge other speakers to, you know, what's the model here? Try to you find actually, one? Uh, you got to show up, right? So you actually have to apply to Thank you for your absence. Yeah, pay. So, as you like to say. So I'd like to be, now I'd like to be paid for my absence from here. Um, but um, so it's just not a business model associated with speaking. It's great, but... Um, I don't. I just don't. I have not figured it out yet, because people want to see you. They want to talk to you. They want to know about your story. Um, so while it's good, and I think you can make some. You just money, have to be bigger audiences. Scale your audience, the back end side of things, instead of yeah. Team number events, but yeah. But it doesn't. Not, it doesn't necessarily. For me, it didn't work. Tony um, Robbins it. <laughs> yeah, you can Tony Robbins it, but I think even then, Tony Robbins got like yeah. Eventually, you reach a cap. Yeah, you're like, do I really? So for me, I was like, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to go out and speak, have to speak um, to make a living? And that means you get on a plane, you have to go show up, have to do it, you know, 50-something times a year, which is a lot to do. And um, I just, I was like, this got to be a better way to do this. And so I decided that I really did not want to speak all that much anymore. I still do an occasional event here and there, but I don't. Don't really do it anymore. As a full-time thing. Yeah, it's hard to do as a full-time thing, okay. especially when you have commitments elsewhere. Definitely. Uh, so, kind of diving into a little bit about, you know, what's what's on the what's on the burner right now. Yeah, the GCU Innovation Center is my sort of priority right now. Finished. I just finished up another book, but GCU since August fifth, I took a role at GCU, Grand Canyon University. For those of your listeners who don't know, is the largest Christian university in the world now. Um, Eighty thousand online students, twenty-two thousand five hundred um, students. Um, on campus um, in West Phoenix, Arizona. Um, what they wanted to do was really interesting to me. So they said, look, we, we want to we take our education and we want it no longer to be just theory. We want to have, we have a facility, it's 140,000 square feet. We want to actually bring in companies and we want, not like a WeWork or not like, um, we want to bring in companies um, Nonprofits, for-profit companies, student-founded you know, companies like Greater Media and other companies. Um, and we want to incubate them and accelerate them in a way that's different. And here's the difference. There's no rent. Um, there's no Wi-Fi fee. There's free parking, free gym, all that stuff. Here's the problem, though. Um, you can't pay to be in here. Um, the tension, the model is actually, um, the threshold is actually a lot higher. You have to hire our students, which means you have to have equity. 
and or you need to be in revenue. And um, you got to continually hire our students. And at some point, you'll grow out of here. And um, they said, you know, we need somebody who wants to sort of take it over, have a vision for it, grow it very fast, and um, be student-centric. And, and here's what we want to do. We do not want any of our students leaving GCU without a job. Everyone, because education is about getting a job at the end. At the end of that ed educational experience, there should be a job. So they said, are you up for, up for I said, yeah, let's do this. So August 5th, I started, started bringing in companies. So my priority right now is to make GCU's Innovation Center the um, model for all higher education. By the time um, we leave this place and the, the folks I work with, we will have created a model where education is linked to employment prior to you leaving the educational institution. We will create a model that says, um, with this degree comes this job freshman year, you're going to get experience. So similar to, well, I guess, like a scaled-up version of trade school, 2.0. Uh, 2.0, like this is but for cybersecurity, for um, software as a service, for so whether you're, whether you're getting a degree in, in um, video editing, or whatever it is, Cinematography. Whatever, whatever your degree is, you will apply that pretty Directly. much from day one. And um, you're going to get a job at the Innovation Center with the company. Now, you'll leave, this, you know, you'll leave this institution with a job or with a company. Um, so we're 140,000 square feet here. We're housed with two other organizations that are part of the university. My vision is to have all this whole innovation center, the whole 140,000 square feet filled with over 1,000 students um, working in companies here, well over 100 companies. I'd like to have another 1,000 students who are online community. We have 80,000 students online. I'd like to have them working here. Almost as, not necessarily freelancers, but virtual assistants. You can dial in, lifestyle. right? You know, we have companies here promoting who, that entrepreneurial, you yep. know, work you, on a you beach can, kind of thing. If you if you are a if you're a, if you're a student of GCU and you live in Minneapolis and you have an idea to um, to I don't know, you know, web services, software as a service, why can't you come here for you know come here for a week, stay at the hotel right next to the Innovation Center, come in, go to Revenue Generation Academy. That's our program here. We teach entrepreneurs how to generate revenues with a piece of paper to get from there to a million dollars in three years or less, right? Go to Revenue Generation Academy, pitch to Canyon Angels, which is our investment angel group, part of GCU, um, part of the Innovation Center. If you're in Minneapolis, if you're in Puerto Rico, if you're anywhere in the globe and you go to GCU, you should be able to come submit an application to the Innovation Center that you want to be part of it, We'll, we'll evaluate your application. we we'll say, yeah, you know what? We like this. Um, you can either, you have three options. You can come and co-work with us, meaning you don't have an office, you just have access to the Innovation Center. You can come here and if we have an office available, we'll office you here. Or here's what we can do. You can online innovate, right? You have access to all our students. We'll get you people. They'll have to dial in and work for you, right? You can come here once a month, you know, stay at the hotel and work, you know, get all the resources here. Um, so we can do that as well. So my idea is that the vision is that we create a, um, a, uh, an organization here that supports the education, that every student at GCU, all 100,000 students, can at some point in their academic career come to the Innovation Center, interview, find a job, or create a company here. Um, that's where education is going, and here's why. There's 
trillion dollars reasons why, and it's called student debt. Mm -hmm. So the reason why student debt is a problem is because people can't pay it back. The reason why they can't pay it back is because they paid a lot for education, and guess what? No job. No job at the end. Hey, but they got a degree in gender studies. Right. I mean, that's, unfortunately, it has no currency, right? It's like your political science degree, right? So fortunately, I, you know, I did something that allowed me to, to, you know, to repay or to, to do that. But mm -hmm. um, unless you're able to connect your education to some type of revenue generation at the end, your education doesn't have a lot of value. You, it's Just called a, piece a hobby. Of paper yes, piece of paper. You do know, it on your own. Expensive. You can do gender studies on your own. Exactly. So what kind of traction have you gotten so far with the Innovation Center? So we have um, 50 students working here. So started, officially started, um, you know, first day was like August 27th, right? So st students came in at that point. So from August 27th, which is today, 1120. So what's that? Three months? Something About. like that? Just under three months. Mm -hmm. We have, um, let's see, uh, 30 organizations moved in, 30 you know, um, ventures moved in, 50 students officially working here. Um, so I'd like to get, um, by December 1st, about 100 students working here. So real strong start. Um, been a great team effort. Everyone's kicked in uh, to make it happen. We will, st we will establish in the next 90 days, we'll establish a security operations center, which now, if you're a student at GCU and you're getting a degree in cybersecurity, you'll be able to get real-world experience by not only getting your degree, but you'll be able to work on what's called a SOC. Um, we'll, we're one of the only institutions that allows for people to do that. Um, you'll do that. In addition to that, we're bringing in what's called the Network Operating Center. We'll have our own cloud, NOC. Those will be housed here. Um, in addition to those two things, we're actually creating a um, um, nonprofit center of excellence. We have a lot of nonprofits that are GCU's a nonprofit. We have a, non a lot of nonprofits who um, are, are trying to make social change and other changes, but they need to drive you know, donations or revenues. We're changing the model for not only nonprofits and for missions, um, our Christian community. So we'd like to create a nonprofit center of excellence that would include our mission community because they need to find... There's, look, a I way think, to bring in cash flow. I, I think so. Here, here's what I think is going on. I think there's a lot of donor fatigue now. Every time we go buy something, we ask, do you want to make a donation to this, a donation to that? Inevitably, I say yes to that because I'm like, how much? You know, So I'll give a buck at the end. But the problem is I think I'm unique. A lot of people just ignore that, right? Mm -hmm. So how are you going to engage with a donor constituency who may have donor fatigue? We need to find new ways to do that. So the Center for Nonprofit Excellence will do that. We'll figure out how to engage the donor population, how to help nonprofits drive revenues because they... Just because they're a nonprofit doesn't mean they're not, they're, they're not a business. They they're are. not immune to needing to pay bills. They're a business. More or less. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then I guess kind of the next question is what are some of the ventures? If you can give like a little snapshot of what, what's going on day to day in the Innovation Center. Yeah. What are some of the companies that you got? Yeah. Some of the ones are really uh, kind of interesting, not necessarily like um, people know of. We have 40 Below Joe. You, many people remember um, Dippin' Dots. Dippin Dots. So 40 Below Joe is, I like to call it, the adult version of Dippin' Dots. So it's coffee. Now, uh, Kurt Jones is the founder of Dippin' Dots. He exited Dippin' Dots, I think, 2016, um, sold his company. His, his uh, prohibition that he cannot start a new company with dairy. So, but here's what he did. He took espresso and he froze it at 320 degrees below zero. So it's not oxidated. It's actually really good um, into little dots. And then he took non-dairy cream, coconut milk, 
and almond milk flavored, he froze that. So he combined the two, you have French vanilla, salted caramel, um, into, these, into these little Oops. dots that are now your frozen coffee, right? Interesting. It's, it's, it's delicious. Um, so here's the mom. People think he's a, um, he's a um, you know, frozen dot company. I see it as a distribution company, right? Because here's why. He's got to freeze this. It's a unique product, right? He's got to freeze it at 320 degrees below zero. He's got to then put it into a cooler, which it, the modified cooler stays at 30, uh, 40, 40 below zero, Joe. right? That's why it's 40 <laughs> below Joe. But here's the deal. He's got to get that into retail locations, you know, hospitals, restaurants, wherever it is, right? Now he's got a footprint there, right? So he's got a distribution footprint, right? Where he's got 40 below Joe there. He can freeze. We have an energy drink here on campus called Stampede. He's frozen it, right? So now he can put anything into that cooler. Pepsi dots, Coke dots, right? So his play is to say, okay, I'm a distribution company, not a frozen dot company. I can put anything into that. So That makes our, sense. Yeah, so our GCU students are leading the team there where he's pushing these coolers out along campus. To retail locations. Retail on campus. So that's an interesting one. Lux Longboards makes electric longboards. I think it's pretty cool. He's, he's come up with a, with a great idea to make an off-road longboard. So... Um, uh, electric longboard. We are actually just looking at the prototype. Earlier it's today. pretty cool. It is um, same battery technology as Tesla. Um, goes about um, uh, I forget um, twenty something miles an hour. Twenty something, almost thirty miles an hour. Um, it's off road, so I think that's interesting. Um, uh, HomeKey um, is another one, technology based company. They were here. If you've read the book Playing Bigger, they just had the authors of Playing Bigger here last night. Um, they're launching their company. Um, they're doing what I like about HomeKey is they're creating a whole new category of business, right? So I, you know, the easiest way to me to describe it on this podcast is that HomeKey is like Carfax for your home, right? Tells you where everything is, tells you the maintenance schedule, tells you what happened. They do that. Um, Digital takes all. Another company here is Digital. They take all your despairing communication, Slack, email, all that stuff. They put it in one view shed. It's like Mint, where they bring everything together, mm -hmm. but it's all in one place. And you can find all your you know, Dropbox files pretty easily, but it's typing in one word. Um, Greater Media, um, they do um, marketing for healthcare, um, digital marketing for healthcare. Um, we've got a number of other, we have another you know, food service company in the, in the coffee world, which is um, Espressos. They make, it's founded by a doctor in town who, um, really? he, um, physician who created a company, he's made espresso um, Cheerios, Cheerios with white chocolate. Um, Interesting. More technology companies though. So we've got software as a service company that does um, 3D CAD and VR or of um, construction sites. Digital AI, um, which does time and attendance and inventory control usually using um, cameras. So you walk into the back of the restaurant, you don't have to check in anymore. You can just see your face. Okay. When you take the booze off the rack to pour in the vodka martini, it sees the bottle go off and measures how much came out. So time and attendance, inventory control. Crazy. Um, Defendery, who, who um, will probably be here, does. Um, they're moving in here, I think, in January. They do um, work for schools, other places. They do... Um, Security and yeah, tracking. Security for. and tracking of, of um, active shooter. Um, IQ Cal makes a... Um, Medtech company makes a um, smartphone, a laboratory. Does blood and saliva samples. You can get wow. your results in less than a minute. 
So we can test for whatever those tests, whatever tests they, they put on there. You can get your test in there. No longer have to go to get your blood drawn. No longer have to go to the wow. laboratory. Get it in like you know less than a minute. So those are just some of the companies that are here. Both um, student and outside just ventures, community ventures. Yep, student companies. We have got some great student companies here. Um, Lopes Eats is one that is um, for GCU has been trying many years. Every year, someone tries to you know we have thirty one. Restaurants on campus, everyone's like, well, we know we need to do The campus it. is what, eight acres or? It's, it's a big campus. Yeah. Um, you know, 22,000 students. Eight blocks, that's what it is. Uh, yeah. Gets crowded. So um, to have, so they cracked the code on that. Lopes Eats, two freshmen came in. They had an idea. They went to Idea Club, you know, said they wanted to do something. They um, made their first delivery, generated revenues, you know, broke that ceiling. Um, and now they're working to refine that. So two freshmen, just two freshmen. Came in and created a gig economy solution to delivery. Yep, people. hired a, had 100 people come in and want to be delivery people. So, you know, th those things I'm really interested in. Like when people are willing to, that freshman, Kevin is his name, he, um, strategically he's really important because he broke in and did something that people have been trying to do for a long time. And there's a lot of strategic value in that. To the point where Sedexo, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the food service industry, wanted to meet with him. Impressive. They weren't going to meet with him because Sedexo is set up. All those big companies, they they're set up to say no. So they called to meet with him. They wanted to meet with him. So those type of innovations, I think, are really powerful, right? And they empower a student body here that say, you know what, we can do this. We are entrepreneurs. Um, so those. Type of the some of the things there we support them in two ways one canyon angels which is an, you know our venture fund or our angel investment fund um, so if you have an idea you want to pitch it you can pitch it go to canyon angels so real investors over 55 accredited yep oh, go really? to canyon angels 16, website 16 funded companies at canyonangels.org um four of them were uh, four, million bucks total fund yep four companies pitched last time with um with one update and all five of them got funded kind of unprecedented in the uh, angel world. We also have Revenue Generation Academy, which teaches you how to go from a piece of paper with a concept to a million dollars in revenue as quickly as possible using things like an MOU, um, other things like what are the three types of yeses. You get a yes. Somebody will give you a yes just to get you out of the room. Yes, oh yes, Andrew will do this. That's not a valid yes. Other people give you a yes, but they have no intention of really doing anything. You know, they kind of like wish, you want a commitment, yes. Yes, we're doing this. So that's all trained at Revenue Generation Academy. So we do that on Fridays at 1 o'clock, and then we have a two-day session that we bring all, we invite our entrepreneurs in, and we train them in a two-day session. Our next one is coming December 6th and 7th, 2019. Um, so those are the services we provide Is registration here. still open for that? We're closed out on that one. Okay, so, um, completely maxed. That's we're good. maxed out on that. We'll have another one in January. Um, okay. But those are the things that we're doing here. My, I, I, look, I think that you know, in three years' time, we will have the numbers I spoke of. You know, a thousand students working here. Um, I, I do believe. Look, we're already having we've are, we're already having conversations with other universities um, in about the area. This biz, this business the model, model the okay. model about the innovation center. Um, as far away as in New York, um, some in the area, some here. To say we, we need to do something like this. How did you do it? Um, you know, we're still working on the how, but I think that you know we have the basis of it right now. And I think, to my estimation, um, it's it's going. Look, we we only have an eight month year here, so universities don't have a twelve month year. Students come in in August; they leave in you know April, right? So, in my estimation, I think we're doing. We've moved pretty fast, but we had to move fast. 
I think year one is, will be a great success. Year two will be um, even better. I think year three, where we will see this be the model for all universities, will say, you know what? We need to adopt a solution to make sure that our students are getting jobs, not in their senior year, not after they graduate. All four years. The day after years. they arrive here freshman year, they go to orientation with their class, and they go to the, the, our innovation center, and they go get a job. Impressive. I love it. So just to kind of end things off, where can people find more about you? Where can they get your book? Where can they learn about the GCU Innovation Center? Yeah, GCU Innovation Center is a little hard to find right now, so you go to GCU, type in Innovation Center. I think you just search, Google search GCU Innovation Center. Yeah, and I think an article will pop up about it. You'll, you'll find some information there. Um, more about me and my book, Amazon. But my last book is A Warrior's Faith. You can find it on Amazon or whatever fine books are sold. Um, you find it not there. Barnes and Noble anymore. Yeah, I probably not find it there. But um, Amazon, and then um, you know, just more about GCU. You can find it in, in the press. LinkedIn. I'm available on LinkedIn. So, but um, those are the easiest ways to get get to me. Okay, awesome, Robert. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It was great.